All rise. The Honorables, the Presiding Chief Judge and Judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Good morning, welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is Chris Dill and I'll be uh, presiding today to my right is Judge Valerie Zachary. To my left is Judge Julie Flood. Gene Soares, our clerk, and we have Marshal Tom Salou here um, watching the door for us and protecting us. We appreciate all y'all being here. We have one case on the calendar today. It's E-Dealer Services, LLC versus NC Department of Transportation at Al. So if the appellants are ready, you can proceed and let me know if you want to, how much time you want to reserve, if, there, if, if any. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, we believe we reserve approximately three minutes for rebuttal. And good morning. Um, my name is Jonathan Evans, uh, Assistant Attorney General on behalf of Respondent, North Carolina Department of Transportation. Uh, in 2020, the North Carolina Department of Transportation concluded a more than one-year procurement and evaluation process <laughs> to award a contract for the state's electronic lien entitling system to Vanguard Direct. Petitioner E-Dealer Services, the then incumbent vendor, challenged the award under the contract protest process within North Carolina's administrative code. The procurement was reviewed by the state CIO, who is the secretary of the Department of Information Technology. The Department of Information Technology, pursuant to Chapter 143B, supervises and handles all information technology procurements. This includes developing the rules and policies for such procurements, as well as reviewing all procurements and evaluations to ensure their compliance with those required procedures. The state CIO reviewed the record for, of the procurement from the case. This included the proposed information from OAH, which was sent to DIT for a final agency decision to be conducted. The state CIO received arguments as well as proposed findings from all parties and applied DIT's procurement policy and best value procurement procedure and requirements under chapters 143 and 143B. The state CIO then issued a final agency decision which affirmed the contract award to, uh, made by DOT to Vanguard. This decision was detailed in a 47-page order with over 200 findings and conclusions, each supported by the record and transcript, along with specific references and citations to DIT procurement rules and policies. Specifically, the state CIO found that the evaluation of the proposals complied with the terms of the RFP and applicable laws, and that a petitioner failed to meet its burden in its protest. The petitioner then filed a petition for judicial review in Superior Court, as summarized throughout our briefs, the Superior Court conducted an improper <coughs> review of the case, failing to apply the standards of review under the statute. It, it, like, excuse sorry. me, is it your contention that the Superior Court engaged in independent fact-finding here? That is correct, Your Honor. How so? The Superior Court has to apply one of two standards, the de novo or the whole record review, uh, depending on the argument that is, that, that is being addressed or the issue that's being presented under 150B51. Um, whether it's looking for errors of law or improper procedure or unsupported by substantial evidence or arbitrary and capricious. Under the whole record review, it would be looking at the, the last two prongs, the unsupported by um, proper review or arbitrary and capricious. Regardless of whether it's whole record or de novo, the court cannot make independent fact findings. Yet when looking at the record, uh, throughout the, the order, you can see the difference between the Superior Court's order and the final agency decision where it determines the evidence, finds evidence in the record and in the transcripts, and uses that to make its own findings. Well, could, could the, I mean, I'm just, this is just a, just a, get the outset. Couldn't the tr Superior Court make independent findings if they, if the Superior Court felt like the whole, based on the whole record, only one finding could be supported? I mean, it's not, it's not like a jury verdict if there's just one witness that says something. You look at the whole record, and certainly you give deference if there's, substantial evidence or some evidence, but I, I guess if, if you have 99 witnesses say one thing and one witness says the other, the Superior Court could go with the 99 witnesses. Couldn't they make a separate finding than from the one witness that the, that the CIO went with? If, if they think the whole record supports that 99, I mean, they aren't, aren't they making an independent finding under the whole record test if, if the trial court judges thinks the whole record supports the other finding? If the, whole, if the trial court believes that some information leads it to, to making a determination, that is an independent fact finding. The court is charged with looking under the whole record test to see if the evidence supports the final agency decision. It's a yes or no question. If it does not, 
then it would say it does not, and this is not a proper decision. It cannot say, instead, here is the proper decision that should have been made, here is the proper finding. Under the whole record review, it is for the agency alone to determine the weight and sufficiency of the evidence and to apprise conflicting and circumstantial evidence, if any. The trial court must determine if an administrative decision has a rational basis in the evidence and it may not substitute its judgment or evaluation of the evidence for the agencies as between two conflicting views. And the whole record test is not a tool of judicial intrusion. So when you're looking at the factual findings, when you're looking at whether it's supported by the evidence, the, the trial court, as a, sitting as an appellate jurisdiction under a judicial review under 150B51, cannot engage in independent fact-finding. Well, we're not supposed to in, engage in independent fact-finding when we have, uh, we're reviewing, you know, a jury verdict. But if there's no evidence, if, if all the evidence supports one finding, couldn't we say as a matter of law, this is what happened? If all the evidence supports, so, I mean, I'm not saying this is your case, but couldn't a trial court judge, superior court judge reviewing this under the whole record test, if all the evidence only supports one finding, that, uh, any, anybody reviewing the whole record test, it would only support this finding. Couldn't the judge say as a matter of law, this is the only finding that, that could be out there? I'm not saying that's what happened here, but is that not a possibility, as if we're reviewing a jury verdict? I, I think, and forgive me because this isn't exactly potentially what we're, what, what's in here, but I think if we're talking about a, a judgment notwithstanding the jury or something where the, the evidence does not support, the, the jury verdict does not support the evidence, then it's a matter of law that the court is making a determination. Here, it's not a legal determination. The, the court should be reviewing to see whether the agency decision was supported. Okay. And if the evidence doesn't support, it should remand for a proper determination to be made. The court should not be sitting in a position where it reviews the cold record and it makes independent findings of these ratings, of these criterion, and says, based on this evidence, and, and if it weren't for the disregarding of the, the evidence and the reasoning in the final agency decision that is quoted throughout, that would be one thing. But going from 200 findings of fact and conclusions in the order to, I believe, 76 or 77 in the, the Superior Court's order shows that there was a condensation of information and clearly they, they did not focus on everything as the final agency decision. Well, drill down. I'd like to know what, what in the order you think was, was error. Well, Your, your Honor. Um, and you can get there if you want to get there. Yeah, you thank you, Your Honor. Um, well, Take the road you want to get there. I just want to Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I think that the most important thing is, is, is that the court in looking at the, the things that it could make decisions on with respect to the legal arguments of the procedure, it failed to defer to the agency's expertise when it needed to. And part of the judicial review is whether it's based on any errors or procedures. So under de novo, it can do so. However, these are, uh, this is a case centered on procurement requirements and procedures under DIT's procurement policies. Instead, the Superior Court based its conclusions of procedural questions on its own interpretation of those rules. To do this, the Superior Court removed the context of the agency's determination, which is necessary to a proper review and notably absent throughout the Superior Court's order. For, Are you advocating for like a Chevron deference where the judge doesn't have the de novo right, right to make a de novo review or interpret the, the standards on his own, his or her own? I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't hear. I mean, you're saying that the, the judge should have deferred to the agency's uh, interpretation of the, of the criteria instead of being able to interpret them as a judge on his own, which, are you saying that that was improper to do that? Well, in separating out the standards that it should be applying, if it's a factual determination and you're determining if it's unsupported by the facts, it's a whole record review right. and there should be no independent decision regardless. Under de novo, if it's looking at the procedure, if it truly believes it's a, an error of only procedure, there is a requirement that there it needs to look at the evidence in the context of the case and our Supreme Court said in N.B. Rogers that a conclusion based on abstracted evidence may be rational, but it is not a rational decision of a case tried. Right. So again, the context is important when looking at the matter and what the agency decision used in its interpretation and its reasoning. But the deference traditionally given, given to the courts, um, this, course, uh, this court um, in, in Brit Haven outlined that, uh, that requirement or that traditional deference to be given. Um, we wrote about that in our briefs, and the Superior Court also noted it, where it said the trial court must take into account the administrative agency's expertise under the tests. In Brit Haven, this court outlined that uh, an analysis that the weight of such interpretations in a particular case will depend on the thoroughness evident in its consideration, the validity of its reasoning, its consistency with earlier and later pronouncements, and all those factors which give it power to persuade if lacking power to control. Despite that citation in their order, the Superior Court conducted no such analysis and at no time deferred to DIT's expertise or its procurement. So if it were just, not only, it has the power to do so, 
but to not conduct an investigation to see if DIT knew what it was talking about shows that there was no deference given, and this is an error of law. It needed to follow the case law here. Uh, there is no evidence in the record in a case where the burden is on the petitioner that DIT and the evaluation committee, along with the subject matter experts of DOT and DIT, were unfit, incompetent, or otherwise were not qualified in their assessment of DIT security procurement rules and requirements. The factors from Brit Haven to consider whether to give deference to the agency weigh heavily for the agency in this case. There is no evidence of adverse or inconsistent rulings, and there is a thorough analysis and reasoning, including heavy references to the language of the statute, the code, and the written DIT procedure. Looking at the Superior Court's order, it considered legal questions on its own, even though these are extremely technical and nuanced considerations. What about the, I know, I know one thing that was talked about was how they were instructed when they evaluated these two proposals, you can't compare them, you just look at them independently. Was that, was that, a, was that a violation of procedure? Was it okay for the Superior Court to say that was a violation? No, Your Honor, that's not a procedure. Uh, that's not a violation of procedure. If I can have one second, I want to make sure I, I have exactly where that is. Did it differ from the usual pr procedure? There is no evidence in the record if it was an actual difference from the procedure. I understand that there was a, a witness, Mr. Duda, who said that this is different from what we've normally done. But not only was there no actual elaboration of if this was different because it wasn't an actual comparison of the, pro of the <clears throat> proposals, or if this was different because there was a rule change. And I believe Christy Murphy testified during the, uh, during the hearing that there are changes over time to the procurement rules. Again, this is petitioner's burden in this, in this protest, yet the Superior Court made these findings without the evidence in the record of whether or not this was actually an, uh, a violation of procedure. Well, what about the procedure then about when you can ask for clarifications about what was meant in the app, your application, but you're not allowed to really put on new evidence, and, that, and so all these, all the, the scores flipped because they were allowed to give all this oral testimony or whatever. Yes, Your Honor, and, and with respect to the direct comparison, I know there's language in petitioner's brief, but looking at the actual language of the code and of the DIT procurement manual, all it says is a comparative evaluation. Okay, that's and we've highlighted in our brief that there is a, an entire document called the Evaluation Consensus Report that it concludes the evaluation that culminates and summarizes their evaluation. That's not just a counting of the ratings. It actually elaborates and says, we have issues with security concerns here and, and other things. That's fair. That's so there's a narrative-driven uh, approach to this as well. Um, with respect to the, the argument with respect uh, uh, curing material deficiencies in the oral presentations, the RFP itself said that oral presentations are to be expected and are to be allowed, that the additional weight awarded from oral presentations will be added to the previously assigned weights to attain their final rankings. And there's a big to-do about curing material deficiencies and how that's not allowed under the statute or under the, uh, the procedural uh, rules and, and DIT's procurement. Uh, however, it allows for clarifications to be used, and it says in the code that clarifications can be sent for things like clerical errors and such. And when you look at the actual evidence, uh, one of the things that was touched on was the project management uh, operations requirements, or specifications, excuse me, um, where it says that the previous MA was previously attached. They needed clarification with respect to the PMP certification, and that was clarified. The resume had already been attached. They reattached it and said, here's some further information on it. Um, the draft plans, the, the transition plans and the like, um, again, they noted a number of them had been attached originally, but they were in a different format than what was expected. When the clarification responded and said, this is why it's in this format, it's just an example, X, Y, Z, the, the evaluation committee went back and said, understanding that, we now understand what they're trying to get across here. So it truly, it truly was a clarifying of the information without providing substantive information. However, touching on I think one example that is useful to illustrate the dangers of, of the Superior Court's order is looking specifically at AVA 2. And reading AVA 2, it says an eight-hour recovery time objective in RTO grants NCDMV sufficient time to perform recovery work through the submission of select batch processing jobs to reprocess data after the system is recovered for full use before the next cycle commences. Describe in detail how the awarded vendor will support RTO of eight business hours. Under judicial review of an agency decision, how should the Superior Court review the final agency decision in that type of rating? Should it decide the merits of the content of that proposal? No, it shouldn't under judicial review. The final agency decision stated the reasoning from the subject matter expert for the rating of a significant weakness. 
it, while the uh, petitioner stated that it provided the metric that was asked for, it did not provide the, what they said, recorded times. These were simply estimates of a plan of a system that has never been tested or recorded. They said that it was generic, high level, and did not touch on criteria being requested. Looking at the agency decision, there is clearly evidence and reasoning provided. Should the Superior Court decide what the rating should be based on the evaluation of that information? It should not under judicial review. However, the Superior Court determined that the petitioner's rating must have been an error because it, it should have been better because petitioner's proposal stated explicitly its recovery time. It, this is an independent fact finding and this is not based on proper consideration of the evidence under judicial review. Should it decide whether a clarification given to petitioner for that specification renders the procurement invalid? No, but even if it did, the Superior Court failed to properly acknowledge the evidence in the agency decision. We just touched on other clarifications that were used with Vanguard. The committee, in fact, gave petitioner the opportunity to supplement their proposal in ABA 2 with two different sets of clarification questions. Yet the responses still led the subject matter experts to believing that petitioner staff was not able to understand or provide what DOT needed to verify the safety of the solution. That is found nowhere in Superior Court's order. Should it decide whether the concerns with petitioner's ability to perform under ABA 2 has any weight on them being granted the contract? No, that is for this, a question for the state CIO. Instead, the Superior Court failed to consider the outstanding factual issue and awarded them the contract anyway. Uh, one other issue that the, um, excuse me. I apologize. One other issue that was touched on in, in the briefs was the review of all the evidence and, and how the, the OAH's proposed decision, proposed conclusions, and proposed uh, findings were all before the court as well, and that way it, it could review all of those. However, the Superior Court statutory review considers the final decision in the official record, which includes those things. But the proposed findings and conclusions of OAH carry no weight or authority in the state CIO's decision. The statutory authority that allows for the judicial review under APA previously assigned weight to those proposed findings and such, but that was specifically removed more than 10 years ago. The, the final agency decision has the final say in whether or not the information is reasoned and what information should be accepted in the agency decision. Additionally, the standards of review in this case do not allow the Superior Court to replace the agency's findings and conclusions with those of OAH. The Superior Court must review the findings of the agency decision and either determine if evidence supports these findings or if they were made on some reasoned determination. The reason this issue is crucially important is to ensure a proper review by the court under 150B51. If the Superior Court believed that it was to consider the proposed findings, conclusions, and proposed decision of OAH, it could result in the court not properly applying the standard of review for an agency decision. Instead of considering whether the evidence supported the agency's decision, the Superior Court weighed the decisions against each other. During the hearing, the Superior Court said, why was Judge Lassiter wrong? I didn't think she was wrong. I thought she evaluated this matter correctly and it struck me as odd that I didn't see anything that caused me concerns about how she ruled. The fair thing, looking at this with objective eyes, I think what occurred at the OAH level based on Judge Lasseter's ruling was the correct rule. Reading the order further, the Superior Court recited Judge Lasseter's proposed findings and rulings in 11 of the 76 findings made. From the judge's statements and the review of the order, it is clear that this was not a judicial review under 150B of the final agency decision. Well, it was, it, you were saying that, you know, the, the, that the final decision had to be the result of a reasoned determination. That's correct. Right? Well, if you look here at the Superior Court order, um, Judge Gregory is referencing you know, that Vanguard submitted a template of a change management plan that was entirely in a foreign language, things like that. It, you know, if, it, if it's submitted entirely in a foreign language, how can that be part of a reasoned determination? That was one of the things that was clarified in the clarification questions, and the Vanguard uh, in response to that clarification question indicated that that was a draft template. The language was Latin, and it was supposed to provide them a, a summary or how a change management plan would appear. It did not actually have the contents that you would normally have because it's just a sample template. Um, but that was clarified under the clarification questions, which was stated in the final agency decisions record and in the record of the case, but again was not in the Superior Court's order because it determined that, similar to, the Superior, similar to OAH, that can't be right. Why would that possibly be right? Um, the second issue that we touched on was the ability to offer or to order relief. Uh, the Superior Court's ability to order relief by awarding directly to the petitioner. Um, we recognize that there are uh, powers granted to the court to affirm, remand for further, further proceedings or reverse or modify um, under 150B51. 
Um, as we have argued, the Superior Court's order was an error, and relief uh, should be to reverse before this court or to remand for further proper proceedings. However, if this court were to remand for the Superior Court for further proceedings on some or all of these issues, um, it is imperative to, uh, to resolve these outstanding factual and legal issues. Um, the Superior Court made, or, excuse me, the state CIO made no finding as to who the next lowest price technically competent qualified offerer was. Yet the Superior Court admitted that, as well as petitioner in their brief, but instead made a determination that the only reasonable decision justified by the entire record was that petitioner's proposal provided the best value to the state. This exceeded its authority, again, because it wasn't in the record, and this was, a, an, this was not the proper standard for the relief to be determined. Uh, as we touched on earlier, DIT is the sole authority permitted by statute to handle procurements and determine the technical qualifications of a vendor and its solution. Under 143B1350, the state CIO and DIT are responsible for establishing the policies and procedures for IT procurements. Specifically, the statute mandates that, it is, that this is notwithstanding any other provisions of law. The state CIO has the power additionally to cancel or suspend an IT procurement that occurs without the state CIO's approval. Article 15 of the same chapter makes it clear that it is the duty of DIT to review all IT procurements to ensure they meet current technology standards. Further, the, statu the, the chapter and the article talk about the requirements for security and privacy of all information technology systems and data and all the other responsibilities for the state CIO. The Superior Court disregarded all of these statutory protections and requirements, instead bypassing IT's review. This court must ensure that a trial court sitting as an appellate jurisdiction cannot make its own decisions regarding whether a prospective vendor meets the statutorily required security provisions mandated to protect citizens and their data under 143B. If remanded, the state CIO could find, based on the errors in this evaluation alleged by Superior Court and Petitioner, that the procurement was so improper, the solicitation so insufficient, that it had the power to cancel it because neither vendor were competent. Tell me, but talk about, I think the, the uh, request for proposal say, give me, tell us three people you've worked with, and, and the, the appellees talk about how Vanguard lacked any prior ELT experience, and so therefore didn't meet that criteria. Yes, Your Honor, and, and specifically the title for Criterion C was Corporate Experience of Similar Size and Scope and Strengths of References Relevant or Material to Technology Areas or Specifications. And part of what we talked about in our brief was the fact that the, the issue with these, the Superior Court reviewing this and making its own decisions and giving no deference to the final agency decision was it just compacted this to whose references look better and who's been doing this longer. It doesn't actually take into consideration relevant or material re information uh, or, or references or the, the corporate experience relevant or material to the technology areas so or the specifications. Fact that it wasn't, quote, ELT, it, it, still be, it could still be similar, something similar to that. That's and, 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 Your Honor, the Vanguard provided a number of uh, DMV references. Um, the the uh, final agency decision um, noted that uh, these were similar in scope, and they actually t used the testimony of the evaluation committee who, considering Criterion C said that the systems that were used, what they were doing previously, was essentially the same thing. I believe one of them said that it was um, ELT and electronic titling were a matter of semantics because it's the same process. That was in the final agency decision. The Superior Court instead said that only one of the references concerned vehicles and none of these references concerned an ELT solution. And again, this is what we're talking about. The caution that is normally stated by this court to a to a trial court sitting as an appellate jurisdiction reviewing these type of decisions to not make its own decisions without the context and the deference necessary to the agencies. It decided what the values of the, the merits of this proposal were instead of the actual evaluation committee. Why even have an evaluation committee in an agency making these determinations over months if the Superior Court can take the cold record and make its own decision about the merits of those things and how important those are to the agency and the operations of DIT and DMV systems? And that's what we wanted to get across in this, is that the, the problem with the Superior Court doing this and the whole prohibition is that it's impossible for an appellate court to sit there and say, I'm going to evaluate and assign merit and weight against this court's precedent where an agency and other people have, based on reasoned evidence decisions, done so already. And I'll defer uh, for a couple of minutes to the respondent and intervener. May it please the court. My name is Mike Toddy from Stevens, Martin, Vaughn, and Toddy. We are here representing Vanguard Direct, which we refer to as Vanguard. Um, with me is my partner, Matt Vaughn. 
I was sitting listening to Mr. Evans checking off things in my outline, so I may seem a little sporadic, but I think it's important for the court to understand we were not part of the OAH process. We went through the exact same uh, procurement process as e-dealer did, and if there are problems with that procurement, they were shared equally. That is, they were identical for both parties. So if there are critical failures in the process, I believe that the statutes say you got to go back and do it again, not let's pick the other guy. Um, I think it's also important for the court to understand that this is a RFP that was developed in 2018 into 19, bid in 2019 and awarded to our, con our uh, client in May of 2020. It was a two-year contract with three one-year renewals. All of them are cancelable at the convenience of the state. We are now here in February 2024, more than midway through our second one-year renewal. There's one left and it would take us to June 2025. More than five years has passed since this RFP saying here's our There'll be a new bidding process in 25. In fact, Your Honor, uh, just a week or so ago, the uh, DOT let Vanguard e-dealer know that an RFP is coming to redo all of yeah, us. Okay. And so I think that's important because we understand that this court doesn't want to engage in an academic exercise. To the points that Mr. Evans was making, even if this court upholds the trial court, I believe that under the authority that we and DOT have cited in the brief, the, that the D, um, Secretary, State CIO is what I call him, has the power to say, I haven't made those determinations. I am not awarding that contract despite the court order. I don't know that he's going to thumb his nose at the court, but I think he has that power under the statutes. Um, and you touched on this a little bit in your questions to Mr. Evans, Judge Dillon. You know, what about the, they didn't allow them to uh, compare them? And I, th I, I will reiterate what uh, Mr. Evans said. Initially, they were asked to evaluate them independently, but they came uh, into the evaluation consensus report, which is at uh, 1766 to 1785, and it's a side-by-side -side comparison, and it goes through all of it. And I think that that shows that the process worked, and this is why it came out. If you look early on, you've got the, the incumbent vendor, the people evaluating it, certainly it worked with them, they understood their technology. Our client was bringing a different technology, a different solution, which is exactly what DOT wanted in going through this process. If you don't understand something on paper, you're not familiar with it, you may not see its value. And so initially there was some, I'm not sure this is the best thing, but they go through the process, our clients show up with a fully working system at their presentation, and they do a disaster recovery plan. They show all of the functionality of this. And as Mr. Evans said, it's the same system that they've been doing electronic titling in New York for years. And at, if you look at page 69 of the record in paragraph 69, that is where the state CIO referenced that Mr. Farmer, who was the subject matter expert for this evaluation committee, said that the difference between ELT and electronic, uh, electronic titling was semantics. Your Honors, I'm looking at it, and Mr. Evans reserved three minutes for rebuttal, and I don't know if I'm cutting it into his time. You are, yeah. Um, would, but I'll give you 30 seconds to, like, wrap up. All right, so I, I, I think you asked what, what is wrong with uh, the trial court's order. And I went back and looked, and it, he didn't put it in his order. But the 47-page final agency decision, he referred to as whimsical. I would urge you to look at it and look at the painstaking detail that he went through to go through why he made the decision he did. The path of least resistance was to say, ALJ says this, we're going to do that. But he didn't do that. Why? Because he's the guy whose desk this ends up on if it doesn't work. The Superior Court didn't lay the evidence beside this and say, okay, he says transcript page four, does that contain that evidence? Uh, no, it doesn't, or it does. What Mr. Evans was saying, and and what I'm trying to implore the court is that look at the final agency decision, compare it with the, the order from the trial court, and I believe one, you'll find that one is whimsical and it's not the final agency decision. With that, Your Honors, we would ask that you uh, uphold the award to our client, and if it does undertake a remand, the remand should go back to the Department of Information Technology to decide whether it's gonna rebid this or do something else. The state's not gonna be left in a lurch <clears throat> Excuse me, Your Honor. 
These folks ran without a contract for years doing this. Our client is in place and can continue in their process. If we remand to, to rebid it, isn't that moot because we're, they're rebidding it anyway? I, I think so, Your Honor, and part of the reason I brought it up. Okay. Uh, That's good. Thank you. May it please the court. Chief Judge Dillon, judges of the North Carolina Court of Appeals, my name is Michael Goldsticker and I represent the petitioner, Applee, in this matter, E-Dealer Services, along with my colleagues, Catherine Claudfelter and Bruce Thompson. The very purpose of the Administrative Procedure Act is to ensure that checks and balances exist over administrative agencies and the executive branch more generally. The act creates judicial oversight to ensure that judicial uh, agency decisions, including contract awards, are administered fairly and result in a reasonable outcome. In fact, the very first provision of the APA states that it is intended to ensure that agency decisions are not all performed by the same person in the administrative process. And there is no better example of uh, why there is a need for judicial oversight than this very case. For nearly five years now, eDealer has been attempting to establish relief from a flawed contract award. During that time, eDealer has appeared before two neutral judges and prevailed on both occasions. First, eDealer appeared before an administrative law judge who presided over a contested case referred to by the agency itself. The agency sent the matter to the administrative law judge to develop the evidentiary record. And the administrative law judge recommended that e-dealer receive the contract award. The agency then flipped the switch to Vanguard before it had even issued a final decision. The agency then disregarded all of Judge Lasseter, the administrative law judge's findings, without any substantive discussion and ruled in favor of upholding its original contract award. Next, the matter went to the Superior Court on judicial review, and e-dealer prevailed again. And frankly, it was not a close call. The Superior Court judge found that the, found that the final agency decision was procedurally flawed, arbitrary and capricious, and not supported by record evidence. The Superior Court judge then exercised its discretion and held that the appropriate remedy in light of these circumstances was to reaward the contract to e-dealer as the only justifiable outcome supported by the record evidence. Now, the agencies appear before this tribunal, and they try to insulate their decision by arguing that the Superior Court exceeded its authority. They argue that the Superior Court failed to apply the appropriate standards of review but judicial review is not a rubber stamp. As Your Honor alluded to during prior questioning, the Superior Court needs to actually engage with the entire record and analyze whether or not the findings reached by the agency are actually supportable, whether there is a reasonable outcome consistent with the evidence. The Superior Court has to look at whether there was evidence that the agency just utterly disregarded, as happened here on numerous occasions. And based on that review, the Superior Court found that the only supportable outcome, the only one that could be justified by the evidence, is that e-dealer's proposal represented the best value to the state of North Carolina. Even more brazen, the agencies argue that the Superior Court lacked authority, in fact, all courts lack authority to reverse DIT contract awards. But that argument is contradicted by the very terms of the North Carolina Procedure, uh, Administrative Procedure Act itself, which expressly permits courts to reverse agency decisions. And that is exactly what the Superior Court judge did here. It held that four years had now passed, now five years. The only practical, practical outcome that would provide e-dealer with any relief is to award it the contract. 
the Superior Court further found that as a practical matter, there's nothing left for the agency to do. The only evidence supported by the record was to award the contract to e-dealer. A remand would serve no purpose in these circumstances. Now, uh, my friend on the other side mentioned that there is a rebid coming up, yet that is just another attempt to avoid granting e-dealer relief. If you remand and they're allowed to issue, the state is allowed to issue another rebid, what it means is that for now five years, e-dealer has tried to vindicate its right to this contract. It established before the ALJ and before the Superior Court that its proposal represented the best value to the state. Yet the only relief that e-dealer would be entitled to is to try again down the road with another proposal. There's no remedy here like damages. There's nothing else that can compensate e-dealer for all of the effort that it has spent to try to establish itself as the best value to the state. So if we affirm e-dealer would get the contract for about a year, is that right? Uh, Your Honor, the Superior Court ordered in order as a matter of essentially fairness that e-dealer is entitled to at minimum a two-year contract. The original term of the RFP was for two years. And so the Superior Court ordered that since its proposal represented the best value to the state, it was entitled to a two-year contract to commence whenever e-dealer was put in place as the uh, bidder. Uh, so if you were to affirm the order, uh, whenever e-dealer satisfied the state's security requirements, e-dealer would get two years uh, consistent with the original RFP, and then at that point the state would be free to promulgate another RFP, start the process over at that point. Um, Even though we're four years down the road, the world could have changed. Cause that, I mean, nobody knows what condition e-dealer is in now or Vanguard. So. But, but that would be the appropriate remedy, you'd say, without having to show that they're still qualified and any uh, of that? I believe that would be the appropriate remedy, but there are protection, uh, precautionary measures in place to ensure uh, that all of the consequences the other side alluded to wouldn't in fact happen. After the Superior Court of this matter awarded uh, order that the contract should go to e-dealer, e-dealer then didn't immediately step in place as the vendor. E-dealer then worked with DIT, worked with DOT at that time to make sure that its system was still up to date, satisfied all the state's security measures, had everything that the state would need it. And if this court were to affirm, a similar process would happen. E-dealer would then work hand in glove with the state to make sure that all of the precautions that were talked about earlier were in fact satisfied. And if and only if E-dealer satisfied the security and other IT requirements that are mandated, would E-dealer then step in place as the vendor. Uh, there is no circumstance where somehow e-dealer would step in place as the vendor and all of the citizens' uh, data would somehow uh, get exposed like the other side uh, alludes to. Um, precautionary measures do exist and have happened previously to make sure that everybody uh, was comfortable with e-dealer proceeding. Um, in terms of the other point about the remand, um, uh, my friend on the other side mentioned that all the procedural errors uh, worked, uh, affected both sides equally. Uh, that's simply uh, not the case. If you look at the ways in which this procurement went awry, it was to Vanguard's benefit and e-dealer's detriment. Just to offer a few examples, uh, Judge Zachary, as you mentioned, uh, the, there were missing plans. One of them was an entirely different language. It was in Latin. Um, there were other deliverables, other plans that were missing together, like an operations and transition plan. Um, a clarification was sent in order to give Vanguard an opportunity to cure those uh, deficiencies, to provide the missing plans. Um, in fact, one of the key members on the evaluation committee said, any weakness that Vanguard received should be asked again. That's why you see a total of six clarifications sent to Vanguard in attempt to remedy all of these deficiencies. The plans are just uh, one example. Uh, another error of procedure uh, concerns um, the uh, use of the uh, presentation. Again, as I mentioned and as we've talked about already, that presentation was used to boost Vanguard's score and to remedy all of its deficiencies. Um, and the RFP itself stated that presentations could only be used consistent with the regulations governing clarifications. In other words, the RFP itself provided that you couldn't use a presentation to cure material deficiencies. Uh, so uh, all of these curing, these, these weren't clerical mistakes. These were gaping holes in Vanguard's proposal that clarifications and presentations were used uh, to fix. Uh, to touch on a few of the other procedural errors, 
this was talked about briefly. At the very beginning of the process, um, a officer in charge of this procurement, procurement told the evaluation committee members that they could not compare the proposals directly against each other. And a long-tenured uh, member of the evaluation committee, he had approximately 10 years of experience, said this is the very first time that he's ever come across a prohibition along those lines. He complained to his boss, a senior member of DIT, about it, and then reaffirmed uh, that uh, view during the actual evidentiary hearing. And uh, Your Honor talked about the notion of Chevron deference. Um, the procedures that the state follows, specifically with respect to best value, are not something to which the state um, uh, receives deference here. Best value is a statutorily defined term. Uh, it also is defined by regulations. And these uh, agencies are not free to just decide for itself how best value procedures are supposed to be followed. Um, that are, these are established procurement methods and procedures. And telling the evaluation committee members they cannot compare the proposals against each other uh, violates those established uh, procedures. Um, with respect to the substantive review, again, I submit that this wasn't a close call. This isn't a situation where the uh, superior court judge uh, delved in the record and was only looking at one or two issues and decided for himself uh, how the outcome should go. Across the board, he found errors. Uh, just to give you a few examples, I think the easiest one is corporate experience. E-Dealer had been doing ELT since 2010, and at the time of this procurement, it was the vendor in five different states. By contrast, Vanguard didn't have any ELT experience. Um, in fact, and just to clear the record on this, I believe there was a suggestion that Vanguard had provided a number of DMV references. They only provided one. The only reference that they provided was the New York DMV. They had, at the time, only been operating a uh, different electronic solution for that DMV for two years. If you actually look at the reference that that DMV uh, provided to North Carolina, it was lukewarm at best. Uh, so to your Honor's point, uh, the uh, Superior Court was not required to somehow defer to the unreasonable view that that one lukewarm reference for the New York DMV somehow is equivalent to the four uh, other states in addition to North Carolina where e-dealer had been uh, providing ELT services. Uh, it was quite lopsided um, with respect to corporate experience. Um, the Did they have experience in providing, I mean the statute says directly has experience providing electronic solutions to state motor vehicle departments. Did Vanguard have experience providing electronic solutions to state motor vehicle departments? Uh, they had uh, experience providing electronic solutions to one department, to singular, at the time. Uh, so we're not contesting that they failed to satisfy the statute that made them eligible. Our argument is that the conclusion that Vanguard's experience was equal to or should be viewed identically in the eyes of the evaluation committee as the same as e-dealers is unsupportable. Uh, so, so we believe they were eligible under that statute to submit an RFB, but any suggestion that somehow their experience was comparable to e-dealers is inconsistent with the record evidence. Okay, so their experience is not comparable, you would say. Why, why, would, why can the judge then insert his, his judgment rather than send it back saying, you can't evaluate like this, you've got to reweigh all this. So uh, the judge looked at the record evidence and he said, looking at all of this, I've got a, a vendor with five uh, state ELT programs and I've got a vendor who's never done ELT before. He works for one DMV in a different, they work for one DMV with a different solution. Th that is lopsided. There's no rational outcome in which e-dealer could be viewed as inferior with respect to Vanguard. So the only purpose of sending it back would be to reflect that only supportable outcome that, that he's already um, concluded. In other words, if you actually look at the evidence, there's one and only one uh, outcome here that could be supported by uh, what, what was established below. Um, and, and that's what we see with all of these different criteria here. And I'm trying to understand this. Is what Vanguard providing the state now, is it an electronic lien in Thailand solution or is there some other way to solve whatever problem DMV wants to solve? Uh, they were talking about how we do it a different way and DMV likes it or DOT likes it. Uh, Your Honor, it's, the core program is the same regardless of who the vendor is. At the end of the day, it's an ELT program and the job is to make sure that there is a line of communication between the DMV on one hand 
and the lien holders on the other hand, so everybody knows where the liens are, how many there are, when they should be removed. At the end of the day, the nuts and bolts of what the system is supposed to do is largely the same. Uh, so there isn't some sort of new innovative program that was being sought here. Um, and, and part of the, the problem here with the way this procurement went is often e-dealers' uh, solution was identical to Vanguard's. Uh, to give you a few examples, e-dealer, the way they tested their solution, literally identical methods to Vanguard's or the reports that e-dealer could generate, uh, literally identical to the reports that uh, Vanguard could generate or the fact that this was hosted in the cloud. Both vendors provided identical cloud-based solutions. Yet somehow, despite the proposals being identical, the agency found that Vanguard's proposal was superior. That's part of the reason why the Superior Court judge found this uh, decision to be arbitrary and capricious. Is there any criteria in which you would say the whole record would support a finding that Vanguard was superior in this criteria over e-dealer? Uh, any criteria? The one, yeah, the one criterion in which um, the judge acknowledged favored Vanguard is the pricing. That on that for 66 cents uh, per transaction, Vanguard offered a cheaper price. But what the Superior Court judge also noted is what that is e what is e-dealers? E-dealers is 350. Three dollars and fifty. Three dollars and fifty cents per. Rather than 66 cents. Rather than two dollars and eighty-four cents. Two dollars and eighty-four cents. Okay. Yes. Um, but what the judge noted is that. This is the fifth, um, the least important of the five uh, uh, evaluation criterion. Pricing was the least important one. And the reason why. Why can the judge say that? Pardon? Why can the judge say that? Because uh, that is in the RFP. That, I don't, that's not a disputed fact. The way the, the RFP was laid out is there are five evaluation criterion in descending order of importance. And the price was the fifth and uh, least important one according to the terms of the RFP. Uh, itself. Um, so what the judge looked at, he said, this is the fifth least important criterion, uh, criterions B, C, and D, all of which by the plain terms of the RFP are more important. Those were uh, disregarded uh, by the agency. So the agency is relying on the fifth, uh, the least important criterion um, as one of the main bases for awarding the contract. The, the other piece with respect to price that the uh, Superior Court found is the price is not paid by the taxpayers of North Carolina. The, the, the 350 or the $2.84, those are paid by companies who are third parties to the system outside the state of North Carolina. That's part of the reason why it's the least important uh, criterion. Um, the other example that I think is helpful uh, to illustrate where this uh, process went awry. Did the agency Misevaluate B, C, and D, or do they just? Is that what the Superior Court judge said? They mis they mis um, evaluated that, or they just said they just gave too much they gave too much credit to criteria E or the uh, he, he said that um, it was improper to rely on criterion E while not using criterion B, C, or D as a factor in which. Uh, uh, which vendor should receive so the contract. The agency did not consider BC or D at all? They said that, and if you look at the actual um, award recommendation letter, the evaluation consensus award, they essentially said that for B, C, and D, we think both vendors meet uh, the uh, various criteria, so we're not going to use that as any basis to distinguish between the two proposals. Though you would say e-dealer was superior in some of those. Yes, and just to give your, your honor example, criterion B, that was the second most important evaluation criteria. That concerned the schedule. Uh, e-dealer proposed a schedule to get all of the enhancements to its program of 45, 45 days. days. I see that. Vanguard proposed a schedule of 381 days. And what the Superior Court said is by looking at any rational, reasonable uh, review of the record leads to one and only one conclusion that 381 days is a lot longer and more likely to cause an interruption in service than 45 days. Yet somehow, with respect to criterion B, both vendors were given a grade of meets, they were uh, treated identically with respect to those two, and there was no, uh, no reliance on criterion B at all in deciding who should get the contract award. Uh, so I think that's just another example here where, yes, the agency somehow said that 
key dealer and Vanguard both meet that criterion, but if you actually look at the underlying evidence, if you actually look at the proposal, there's one and only one supportable outcome. What did the agency determine as far as A, criteria A? Did they uh, say that key dealer was superior? Criterion A is divided into 107 different specifications. And what the agency said at the end of the day after the whole process is that uh, Vanguard had 11 strengths and zero weaknesses out of those 107. E-Dealer had four strengths and two weaknesses. And so they said 11 is greater than four, we're going to give the contract to uh, Vanguard. And th that was another area where the Superior Court judge felt that uh, this was arbitrary and capricious. If you look at those 11 specifications that formed the basis of the contract award, five of them concerned reporting. They were overlapping specifications that all related to the reports that Vanguard would generate. Um, as I mentioned... Why can the judge then make a call on A rather than send it back and say do it right? Because uh, the, the judge, Your Honor, looked at uh, the basis of those specifications that formed uh, the, that where Vanguard got the strengths and E-Dealer did not, and those are examples of where he found that it was an arbitrary and capricious decision to uh, treat Vanguard better than E-Dealer. So the reporting is one example. Five of those 11 concerned reports. The record established that the reports E-Dealer offered were identical to the reports that uh, Vanguard offered. Uh, so there was no basis in the record to support the outcome that somehow Vanguard for five of the 11 specifications that the agency relied upon was superior uh, than E-Dealer. Um, the reports were identical. And so if you remand it at that point, um, you already have a finding in the record, specifically with respect to reporting, that the only supportable outcome is that these uh, reporting uh, specifications, the party should have been treated the same. There, there's nothing left to do for the agency at that point. The other practical reality overlaying everything that the Superior Court judge was doing is there's a need to move quickly here into the next contract. Um, to just talk briefly about the relief here, we are now five years down the road. There has to be a vendor at all times for the ELT program. It's statutorily mandated. And so what that means at this point is either Vanguard or E-Dealer needs to be in place as the vendor. Uh, if you were to remand because the contract award was improper, then effectively you would be leaving Vanguard in place as the vendor despite uh, a decision from a court that that contract award was improper. Um, the, the more appropriate outcome is to, establish, to put E-Dealer in who has been established conclusively as the uh, proposal with the best value to put them in place rather than simply remanding, drawing out these proceedings, leaving uh, Vanguard in place to continue serving when there's never been a valid contract award for Vanguard in the first place. Did you say in Criteria A the whole record only supports the view that E-Dealer is better? Because you said they have the same and all that, and, and the, the agency said that Vanguard's better because they have 11 strengths and E-Dealer has four. Do you, do you think the whole record could support, I know you're saying that the, that the agency didn't do it right in evaluating, but do you, do, would, you, would you say that the whole record could support either conclusion? Respectfully, no, no Your Honor. I, I don't think well, that. They're equal? Um, are they equal? I, I don't think that for a couple reasons. Uh, first reason is that if you actually look at what was submitted as part of Vanguard's proposal, they never should have been considered in the first place. There were certain prerequisites that could not be waived under any circumstance. Which are what? Uh, the plans are one example. You have to include certain deliverables, an operations plan, a tra cha training plan, a change management plan. If those plans are not included, the proposal can't be considered. Another example is the references. Did they ever submit that? Was that part of the, what they did, um, the supplement? Or? As part of the clarifications, they ultimately did submit one of the plans, but other ones were still missing, the change management plan in the foreign language. And, and have the, never been submitted? I'm not aware of any plan other than the one that's entirely in Latin. And uh, why is that an automatic you lose? Uh, <laughs> so when you actually look at the terms of the RFP, um, when the words must or shall are used, that denotes a requirement. And if you look at DIT regulations, it says that whenever the words must or shall are used, it's a requirement. It cannot be waived under any circumstances. I think the references are one of the easiest examples. If you actually look at the RFP, it says you must submit references of similar size and scope. And, and I would suspect my friends on the other side would agree that submitting three references of similar size and scope are requirements under the RFP. If you don't submit those, you do not pass go, 
your proposal cannot be considered. And that's what our law says. Is there a case law on that? Uh, th that is what the DIT procurement manual says. And during the hearing before uh, the ALJ and in actually the final agency decision itself, um, it acknowledges that using the words must or shall denotes a requirement that has to be satisfied uh, before a proposal can be And considered. you're saying that there, there were certain things that they did not, and you said, what were some of the so I, some of that? I think the references are um, one of the uh, best examples you have. They would argue they gave four. Is there anything more clear? They, they would argue they submitted four references, but what, there was only one um, at best that was of similar size and scope. Um, the references, for example, one was with the Board of Elections, one was with a private company involving um, keeping track of certain property in the company's possession. Um, the only one that was even arguably of similar size and scope was the New York DMV uh, reference. The other three were not. Um, another uh, example of, uh, I mentioned the plans, the, the change management plan, the draft operations plan, a they, training plan. They didn't plan. submit that at all. I'd, uh, w w was there something they didn't submit at all? Not that uh, the, all. the operations plan was not submitted. That was never submitted at all. Operations plan. And yeah, that was. And, and that was a must that should have been. Yes, Your Honor, and that it had was, to be presented and wasn't, so it shouldn't have been considered. Right, Your Honor. That was obtained through a clarification, specifically clarification. Um, so they did provide it? Uh, not initially, no. Uh, they, oh, they did provide it eventually in response to clarification. Was there anything they never provided? I thought you said there was some um, they never provided. Well, the references were never provided. Another example of a missing requirement concerned um, the certification of their project manager. Um, so one of the uh, sections of the RFP was PMO requirements, project management requirements. Uh, one of those was to have a project manager who had a certain type of certification known as a PMP certification. Uh, it is undisputed in the record that they never submitted a project manager who had that requisite certification. This was even followed up by the evaluate, evaluation committee in a clarification, clarification number five. They asked about this. They said, what about the PMP certification? Again, at no point in time has there ever been a project manager submitted that had that requisite. Was that a must? Was that one of the must I, things? I, yes, Your Honor, I believe that is a must. It's labeled, uh, it's labeled a project management requirement. They say it's not a requirement, that the use of the word requirement doesn't actually mean requirement. Um, um, so again, going back to your original question, Your Honor, these are examples where I believe that their proposal never should have been considered in the first place. But even if it was considered, I don't believe any reasonable outcome could have supported the conclusion that their proposal somehow was best value to the state. Um, the Superior Court judge methodically went through each of the uh, areas where they were given a weakness or e-dealer, or they were given, a, Vanguard was given a strength and e-dealer was given a weakness. And for each of those, the conclusion was that the only supportable outcome consistent with the entire record is that e-dealer's proposal was favorable. He then also looked at criterions B, C, and D, which were not considered at all by the agency, and similarly concluded the only supportable outcome here is that e-dealer's proposal uh, was superior under any reasonable view uh, of the evidence. Um, the other, uh, another point, Your Honor, that I'd, I'd just like to briefly uh, address here is the other side contends that there was independent fact-finding, that the Superior Court judge went out on a limb and decided um, uh, for, him, his own, for himself in the, in the first instance how to view the facts. You know, I think it's important to recognize that in the order, if you actually read it, he says he's doing the exact opposite. He properly articulates the standard of review. He expressly says that he's not engaged in independent fact-finding. He notes that he has to defer to the agency expertise. So what the other side essentially is saying is despite the Superior Court properly articulating the standard review, properly saying what he can and can't do, he somehow just disregarded all of that. Essentially, if you look behind what he's actually saying, he went out on a limb and did something different. But that's not what we do when we look at Superior Court orders. On appeal, we look at the terms of the order and what the judge has actually said he's doing, which is here, properly applying the standard of review. Um, there, there's also been a lot of talk about uh, the whole record standard, but I don't want to lose sight of the de novo standard that also applies to procedural issues. There were four separate procedural errors that the Superior Court judge found, and for each of those, uh, de novo review applies. 
he was free to exercise his own independent judgment in deciding for those procedural errors whether or not uh, the procurement followed uh, procedure. Um, one example of that is the best value method that we've talked about. Another example, the extent to which clarifications could be used. Uh, another example concerning the reliance on the presentation. All of these are procedural issues that should be reviewed uh, de novo. And each of those standing on its own entitles e-dealer uh, so to So if ever I'm trying to, if I'm submitting a bid to the state and I leave something out accidentally, I can never, and it's a requirement, I can never supplement my my proposal with, is that what the In the world of procurement, that's often the case, Your Honor. Um, I have a, another matter right now before the Department of Administration, and my client's bid was disqualified for failing to include a form, and there's effectively nothing that could be done about that. Um, now, uh, the state... Uh, As a matter of law, are they not allowed to allow you to supplement if they want to? Uh, I'm not aware of that issue having been litigated before a court. I just know from experience that that is the position the agencies take, that if you so fail... That's a question of law for us to determine whether Judge Gregory got it right. Yes, um, although I will say, again, it, the DIT manual itself um, re uh, requires those to be submitted and says if you don't, we won't consider your proposal. But whether then they could decide to uh, handle things differently, I'm not aware of that having been addressed. Um, so just in the, the last few moments that I have here, I would like to emphasize that there are uh, numerous errors in the final <coughs> agency decision. At that point, e-dealer was entitled to relief. And considering all of the circumstances, the Superior Court believed that the appropriate recourse at that time, the only one that would grant e-dealer any recourse as a practical matter, uh, was to order the contract to e-dealer as the only proposal um, that uh, was consistent with the evidence as best value. Um, I request that you respectfully that you affirm the order. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Your Honors, and I understand I have a little less time than was saved. I'll, I'll try I'll to be you, brief. You, have, you, you take two and a half minutes. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, on, on the last point, with respect to curing material deficiencies, Your Honor asked about uh, if a requirement is missing or something that's considered a requirement is missing, is that kind of the end of the situation? And it has to be something that's considered a, a material deficiency. There's no actual definition for what a material deficiency is under the code or under the, uh, the DIT procurement policy, so it is really up to the, the agency to determine that, depending on whether it would have a material effect on the, okay. uh, on the process. And, and here, I will refer the, the court to our brief, because I think a lot of what has been covered as far as what he claims is not in the brief and what was in the clarification questions and things like that are in our brief, because we directly cite the agency decision, which does describe those things and how, again, the clarifications were used to point them in the right direction, but not to supplement things that would not otherwise be allowable to supplement similar to what Petitioner did when they were given clarifications based on the AVA uh, 2 situation. Um, the whole record review is for the agency alone to determine the weight and sufficiency of the evidence and to appraise conflicting and circumstantial evidence. I, I will go back to that over and over because it is important to know what the standard of 150B51 truly is here. Could different parties disagree or, or agree on different points of this? Maybe, but that's not what we're here for. We could go to the examples throughout our briefs, and again, I'll refer you there just because we don't have so much time. But one of the things to talk about is the comparing evaluations. Throughout the Superior Court's order and petitioner's brief, they argue numerous things that they say are unlawful procedure or errors of law. One of those things is comparing the evaluations, and they cite that it has to be a direct comparison, that best value defined under the statute cannot be ambiguous, it has to be followed. Yet their citation, what they claim to be requiring direct comparisons is nowhere to be found. It is not cited under the code. It is not within DIT procurement. And looking at the best value statute, it says relative strengths and comparative evaluation. So again, we're asking this court, going through each one of the things in our briefs, we don't have the time to do it here, but we could go through every one of these, but petitioner wants that to happen, the Superior Court abided, but the, the respondent will continue to point to the fact that that is not the purpose of judicial review under 150B51. They request judicial oversight under 151. That is what it is for. It is not for judicial intrusion, which is what happened under the Superior Court's order when you read the weighing of the, uh, the evidence that they did here. It has to review all the evidence based on petitioner's request. We have no evidence of that. We have no evidence that it actually considered all the evidence of the entire agency record. 
both what the agency cited in their voluminous uh, order and the other information from OAH. All we have is we have the failure to acknowledge the final agency's decision completely during their, their order. They reference the fact that there was some decision, but they don't talk about what the rationale was and why it is pursuant to procurement uh, policy. The failure to explain how or why the errors it alleged were actually unlawful procedure or errors of law is the reason why the judicial review under 150, uh, 150B51 needs to be carefully followed here. The trial court, when sitting as an appellate jurisdiction to review an administrative agency's decision, must set forth sufficient information in its order to reveal the scope of review utilized in the application of that review. All we have here, based on the statements of the Superior Court judge during his... 20 seconds. All we have when the Superior Court judge was in his hearing was him saying, I think OAH's decision was, was the right one. And then when you read the order, you see that that so reflects it. We do not see any actual review of the, of the final agency decision. That's why this needs to be reversed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your arguments. We'll take it under advisement. Mr. Sore. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned.